Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky. And joining us right there at the bottom in her own uh, private rectangle, Mirren Fader, uh, one of the great features writers that you'll you're, you'll see in sports. Uh, she's with Bleacher Report and just constantly churning out excellent, excellent, excellent material on a wide variety of people and subjects, which we'll talk about tonight. She's got a feature up uh, uh, that just came out today. Uh, Andrea Aquino isn't hiding from anyone anymore. It's a it's a fascinating story about a, a, a women's player at Oregon State who has, to say the least, um, a, a compelling backstory. So we'll, we'll get into that uh, over the course of the show and so many of the other things that you've written. First of all, hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, uh, we, I noticed today you tweeted out that you you did an interview with uh, an 84-year-old man who still plays basketball outside. And I think we should all thank Andy for giving you the time. Uh, he doesn't do a lot of interviews at this point. So uh, that was nice of him. I'm too busy prepping for this show. That's like, right. I, I can only do one or the other. I can't do both. Okay, and then right before we came on, we discovered something completely stunning about you. Before we get too deep into the show, uh, can you repeat to us, what, repeat to everybody what you told us about a minute and a half ago? Okay, I should not have outed myself as a person. Yeah, but you did. <laughs> as a person that just bought a TV before the pandemic. I'm not a TV person. I'm becoming one. You know, it's a process. You so, see, yeah, you see, now you almost kind of skated by. Like a lot of people bought a TV before the pandemic. What made your TV unique, Mirren? I didn't have one before. <laughs> you buried your lead. first TV. It was not. You didn't. You didn't buy, say, a third TV for. You know the. I, I, I guess the the woman cave or anything like that in in your estate. Oh this was the. This was the first TV. You know what? And the older I, TV. I can't deny this. I, I have to I have to own it. I have to wear it proud. Um, I'm a TV newbie. It's happening. Uh, I've had a lot of people try to do interventions. <laughs> are, are you amazed by all these channels and stuff like that? Like I'm is so it overwhelmed. Like I, I feel like I'm at like the ice cream place and you're like, should I get this and that? And there's like 50 flavors. That's how I feel. I'm like. I honestly have a genuine respect for all of you people. How do you choose? How do you, like, there's too many platforms. There's just, I need a bundle of like different, it's just too much. It's just too much. And after I'm done reading, I'm like, do I want to sit and watch TV now? And it's become a whole thing. It's become a whole thing, you guys. I'm I'm growing up. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> what have you been watching on this television? Not a lot, not a lot. Um, I love cooking and baking, so I've been like watching some stuff like that. I just finished like Taste the Nation with um, Padma Lakshmi, so I'm getting there. It's slow. If people want to give me some recs, that would be appreciated. I didn't like the ones that everyone loved, like Succession. I just couldn't get into it. You didn't I like Succession. You didn't like Succession. Because it was kind of it was kind of like a lot, and I I was like wanting to love it because everyone said you're going to love it, and I think I should have just gone in and not listened. Well, okay. I mean this this could explain it. Um, this being your first TV, was this the first TV show you had ever seen before? Because no, jumping no. right into Succession <laughs> as your first show. To be fair, would that that would be a very you had jarring experienced <laughs> television before? Okay, it was a lot, but I have watched TV before. I did. Okay. 
Because that, that would be a jarring introduction to television. I don't like where this interview is going, okay? <laughs> yeah, but we do. That, that's the problem. <laughs> the important thing, Miriam, is we only have 55 minutes left. So you're fine. <laughs> well, okay, here's... Obviously, you're you were not a TV person before that, and that, and that's fine. Like I I I know people, I know people who they, they may own a television, but they barely watch it, and they're just not their thing. What I find really interesting about that is the idea of being somebody who covers sports mm -hmm. and doesn't have a TV. Like I mean, from a functionality standpoint, I would think that you'd need one. Well, I mean, for me, I'm just used to using like computer phone and like streaming and stuff like that. I think the biggest reason was just, I was never home. Like before the pandemic, I was always gone. I was always on a plane. And so I just- There'd be no one home to feed your TV? Like- I don't know. It's like one of those things where I was like, everyone's like, I don't get it. Like you should get one. And I, it was kind of like on your to-do list and then it never gets done. But you know what? I am a proud owner. <laughs> what What did you get? Like what kind? <laughs> Simple Roku. Okay. Oh, we, we have two Rokus in our house. They're great. It's very Ro nice. I like it. Yeah. I'm a big Roku guy. Big <laughs> fan of the Roku. Took me a minute to... You know, but it's good. And I got, of course, like everyone else, I got an exercise bike. I've put it in line. So I, you know. Oh, do you, you have your favorite Peloton or? No, I couldn't do the, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to be that person. I had hope that the gyms would open up and then it got too late where I was like, okay, it's definitely never coming back, but I still don't want to pay. So I got a middle, I got like a, just a, a functional bike. So, so it's not one of those highfalutin, uh, you're. A bike that should be in the top level penthouse, that sort of thing. Oh my god, no, my bike doesn't even really fit me because I'm rather small, so I'm five feet, and there's this supposed to be this like back support because I've had a lot of back injuries, and I used to play basketball, and it's it's not adjustable, so I I end up not using the back thing because I'm too short. So anyway, it's a long way of saying it's not the most spiffy bike, but it <laughs> does its thing. <laughs> at least the tv has someone to talk to now when you're gone this is pathetic guys <laughs> this oh, I, no it, it's fantastic um <laughs> people watch this show to learn about the guests i mean the, we we, we yeah. try to bring people we try to bring our viewers into the uh the human side of all of our guests and to get to get to know you as a person every everybody watching this knows that you're a terrific writer but they they don't necessarily know what makes you tick, you know, and, and the type of TV and bikes that you have. And now they know. <laughs> They're like, that girl, wow, we need to get her some reps. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the things that I think is fascinating about what you do, you talk about always being on a plane and all this. I'm going to list just some of the people that you've written about since like over the last like six months, really. Um, it's, you know, we, we mentioned the the story that's out today on Andrea Aquino. Gianna Bryant, LaMelo Ball, John Morant, Michaela Schifrin, Coco Goff, Sabrina Ionescu, uh, Markel Fultz, Brandon Ingram. That's just like the last couple months. How do you how do you end up in that wide a diversity of of people? Because that is a you know that that's not just like linear. Uh, that's a, an incredible mixture of people. Yeah, when I you know when I was in college, um, the big thing 
back then was like versatility. Um, and it, you know, I kept hearing from, you know, people in the industry, like, make sure you know all sports, like make sure you can cover everything. And then it's weird because over the next five years, everything seemed to specialize. And it was like, what's your beat? What are you doing? But I kind of, once I started doing all these other sports, even though, so my background's basketball. I played a year of college basketball at Lewis and Clark College. I love basketball. At first, I didn't want anything to do with any other sport. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. We'll let you continue, but you played college basketball at five feet? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, pretty mighty, uh, feisty. I was very scrappy. Um, that is really impressive. <laughs> it's like another era. I feel like there's like before basketball, after basketball. And um, yeah, I, I, it was from when I was like 10 years old to when I was 20. It was like, I want to be in the WNBA. Basketball is my life. I want to play, you know, D1, all this stuff overseas. And this is probably why I didn't have a TV. I'm sorry. It's all coming together. It's because I was practicing all day and all night <laughs> trying to become a professional basketball player. And I never like really had time to like watch TV. Um, I was working out like insanely. What, what do you think though playing that year did for like how you approach when you talk to athletes and when you, when you approach these stories, like, was it impactful in that way in, in, you know, in any significant way? Like I, it colors everything for me because I think like, for example, when you play um, coaches would always say like everything you're going through, leave at the door. And I would always think that was the dumbest thing ever because anyone who plays knows that you don't just like leave who you are and what you're going through at the door. Like everything that happens to you off the court impacts what happens to you on the court. And so being an athlete, I was just like, you know what, like there's so many things that athletes go through and I'm so much more interested in the mental and the stuff that's going on internally than physically outside who's playing against who. And so when I'm talking to an athlete, there's just a humanity that I understand and empathize with and you know all my battles being small and doubted like I have a real compassion for that type of athlete and I think you see in a lot of my stories like there's that element of like work ethic improving yourself and that just like naturally came out of out of mine there's also though well, sorry India I didn't mean to step in, but there's also an element of imperfection with a lot of people that you that you write about, I mean, just in that list, you know, of people, obviously, you know, LaMelo Ball is in and out of, you know, controversial stuff, Markel Fultz. I mean, that, that story, you know, it, it, Tyler Skaggs is, you know, he, that was earlier this month, you know, that you, you had that feature that, that, you know, obviously it's a tragic ending and Gianna Bryan is a tra like, there's so many elements of tragedy and imperfection and all these things that, that go into, is that part of the know, attraction, maybe the wrong word, but I think you understand what I mean. The, the attraction is that they're real, that they go through things, that they are not perfect. Um, take any human. We all have good sides, bad sides. Um, and I think that like there's a strain of sports writing that is very like cheerleadery and very just like, you know, tied in a bow at the end. And, you know, I feel like, you know, even though there is this athletic side to me that has been that way my whole life, there's also this like very literary artsy side that wants to tell stories about people before they're athletes. And I think if you look at your work as art and you think art reflects society, there are some really awful things in society. And I have to write about those things too. You know, I can't just write about athletes triumphing over injury. I have to write about like 
this person died of an overdose. Like this person is lost. This person went through this. And I, I just find it so much more interesting, you know? And I think like to your earlier question that I danced around a bit, like the reason why I want to get into so many different subjects is because parachuting into different worlds is fun. Like <laughs> it, I never want to be confined to one beat. I never want to like limit myself because to me, it's not about the sport. You know, it's about the person, the struggle. What can I write about that people might um, understand and humanize and, and, and just relate to, you know, which is the reason why I think we read stories. Is your background as a writer um, from a, is it a journalism background, a creative writing background, both? It, it started as creative writing. It's funny, the first day I played basketball, I was in fifth grade and I was so excited that I had to like tell somebody. And so that was the first day I started diary entrying. If that, <laughs> it's really embarrassing, I still have it. It was like, I shot the ball, it was great. Um, and I just fell in love with basketball so much. And I didn't know that I was falling in love with writing as a creative writing uh, part because writing, creatively in my journal every night was the thing I did to cope with all my frustrations with basketball. And then flash forward to college when my basketball dream like really ended, I went through a lot of stuff. Um, I thought maybe I should become a writer. And so I didn't have any formal journalism training. Um, the college, I ended up transferring schools to Occidental College and they didn't have journalism. So I majored in English. The whole thing was creative writing. And um, that's sort of how it started for me. I learned to be a journalist by just doing it. You know, I didn't have any formal training. That's us too. I mean, we like yeah. in, in, in so far as what we do in this industry, like neither one of us ever took a journalism class. We, we ended up with an opportunity and in, in terms of writing and, I'm just and thinking we, of all the people watching this going, guys, we know <laughs> like, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty clear that neither one of you ever took a journalism <laughs> class at this point. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, pro it may very well be, but, but nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, we sort of had this opportunity to, you know, cover teams. Like at the time when we, when we first started doing this stuff, you know, it was with uh, ESPN, the magazine doing, you know, in the beginning, writing sort of for their their funny section of the magazine, wrote jokes. But but then we would do like we did a few features, and you know, figuring out how to do that, having never done it before, is interesting. And then we uh, covered the Lakers for the LA Times when they were looking to create a blog, and we had a bunch of ideas that we thought would be fun in terms of uh, coverage, but neither one of us actually knew what we were supposed to be doing. There, there's just, there's a lot, uh, you know, like the first time we ever did radio, neither one of us had ever been trained for it. The first time we ever did TV, I remember being brought in to the Spectrum studios and it was very clear. They, they assumed I had done TV before, like a lot of it, because they gave me absolutely no instruction. I'm sitting there going like, how am I supposed to even be looking? Where do like, I look? I had no idea, but it's like one of those things where if you want to do it, you just, you keep your mouth shut and you watch what everybody else is doing. And then you try and be like the smartest version of somebody who has no idea what they're doing. It's so true. Like a lot of um, journalism students contact me and they want to get really technical. Like, how do you do this? And how do you do this? And what's your process here? And, you know, the truth is, is like none of us had a process. We had an assignment and it had to get done and you figured it out 
And the more you did it every day for the next couple of years, the more you think this works or this doesn't work when I do this. And it just happens by doing it, you know, like second day at the, so I started at the Orange County Register and I told my mom, I was like, I don't think I'm cut out for this journalism thing. Like, I don't think I can do this um, because I think it's like, you said, you're, you're being thrown into the fire and you have no idea what you're doing and you either grow some new muscles or you, or you. I, I, <laughs> it was really yeah. funny I, when Brian and I wrote years ago um, the autobiography of this guy who's considered like the Dennis Rodman of professional bass fishing, and it, it's a real thing. And, I mean, he's he's a he's as a as professional bass fisherman goes. Like he's we'll do like Jeff. Does. One of the we'll best. Do the thing where we sign the inside of the copy and we'll send you a copy, but we have to yes. find one because I don't think they <laughs> exist anymore. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a, he's an interesting story. I mean, like yeah. he is by bass fishing standards, this big outrageous personality. And th this came from writing a feature for ESPN, the magazine um, about this guy. And he ended up getting a book deal and he recommended us to write it. So we got brought into this thing. And we at the time we got this deal, we happened to be at the New York offices for ESPN, the magazine, where we used to do some work. And we were talking with our main editor, who's he's a great guy, and it, like he's got this tree. Is Gary Belsky? He's a, he's got this tree of people from ESPN that's like the equivalent of a coaching tree. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, wow. he's, he's really impressive. But he was talking with us, and he's like, "Look, you guys, you know, if you need any advice, you know, if you anything like that, you know, be sure to reach out. You know, I, I'll take whatever I can. I'll try to help you however you can, because you guys really don't know how to write a book." He's like, you really don't know. And so he's like talking more. He's like, you know, be sure to talk to me because honestly, you guys have no idea how to do this. Like you've never done a book before. And you really finally were like, will you stop with this pep talk? Like seriously, like stop trying to get us psyched up to write this book because you're convincing us we can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, But he was right though. We were like, Right. I don't so, know like, how we're supposed to do this. And we had to do you have like these yeah, just sort of distinct right. memories of that, especially just like literally just faking, like truly faking it until you make it? The entire thing was faking it to make it. When I got sent to Lithuania, um, you know, by Bleacher Report. To but the first story. <laughs> I mean, it was like so terrifying because I was being thrown into obviously a new country. I didn't have a translator was terrified, um, had never traveled on my own. Um, you know, Cali girl, I didn't even know how to scrape the snow off the car. Um, and the whole thing was just, you have to deliver. And I think it's like walking into that gym, acting like you know what you're doing and acting like you're not afraid, acting like you're not homesick, acting mm -hmm. like you are, you know, the boss in here. And it's, it takes practice, but the more you do it, the more you're just like, okay, I can do this. Like I found one person that speaks English. I got this. He's going to connect me to this person. <laughs> Two interviews done. We got this like 15 more, you know? And I think like all of sports writing, all of sports media is faking it till you make it. It is. It it literally is. And you never reach a point where you're like, I am a hundred percent confident. Like the whole thing is like, can I get a little bit more confident? Can I get a little bit better? Can I understand this process a little bit better? It's a constant struggle. When you started that story, because that, that's a, that's a great feature of people. You know, again, go back and we'll tweet out the whole just list of things that you've done. But like when when you go and you do the story on Lamella Ball in Lithuania, how much did you sort of know about him and that family and and all that going in? Because it's been sort of hard to avoid, but at the same time, if you're not watching 
first take every day if you're not watching you know what you know what's going on you can miss a lot of it you know sort of especially the you didn't have a tv so <laughs> oh god okay well the first thing is like it was this paradox between why do i see this family everywhere but i know nothing about this kid so I knew everything that was going on with LeVar because I read everything. I did see everything on my mobile phone and I <laughs> and my computer. Um, and same with Lonzo, same with Jello. But it was like the most flamboyant of them all. The one that seemed so different from Lonzo and Jello. The most like loud. Why do we... Why do I see his face everywhere? I know nothing about him. So that was kind of the premise is I'm going in knowing nothing. And I think I know him, right? I think I think he's loud. I think I think he's supposed to be more obnoxious because these are just the only things out there. But when you go into an interview, you try to say, yeah, just because I've heard this about this person doesn't mean it's true. I want to find out who he really is. And, and then I tried to put myself in his shoes, which you'll see in the story is there's a lot of like, I, we're not in Cali anymore. It's like, what would I feel like if my dad took me out of school, plucked me in this little town in Lithuania, it's snowing, and how am I supposed to deal? So I think like, you're trying to take what everybody says about a person and see if there are new layers. That's interesting too, because you you also wrote a feature about Lamelo in Australia, which was the season that he that he just wrapped up uh, before he eventually ends up getting drafted somewhere in the top five, if not number one overall. And it was interesting the way you just said that you know his dad Var took you know took him and put him in Lithuania and that you know the small town snow all of that because I, I was rereading the piece that you did about. Uh, Lamello in Australia, and one of the things that jumped out at me, like you know, right at the beginning, and this particular is something that I I've talked about a lot with the Ball family in general, but just Lamello saying all my life, it felt like I was just supposed to go to the NBA. You know, ever since I was born, damn near, he's going to be an NBA player. And then later on, you talk about how as much attention as Lamello attracts, he doesn't want any of it. He drags when he's asked to film scenes for Ball in the family. He just wants to play basketball. From from the time you've been around Lamelo and you know by extension maybe even Lonzo too, like have you gotten a sense of how much, if at all, they ever wanted the big baller brand thing, and like how much do you think it if it took away at all from their love of the game, like as a job, you know what I mean, like not necessarily on the court, but like the idea of this is my profession and this thing has become a part of it not necessarily because of my own doing, but because of my father's wishes. Yeah, like I think what I learned in Australia is that Mello felt really exploited by this brand. And for him, it's split into two. There's the brand and then there's basketball. And to everyone else, the two are the same. But for him, they're completely different. On camera, Mello, off camera. So there's kind of like these splits that I noticed with him. And, and the first split between basketball and the brand is like when he has to film, he looks miserable. He is playing, he is performing. When he's playing basketball, he's not trying. I'm not saying he doesn't have effort, but I'm saying like he isn't doing a performance of himself. He is the most authentically himself. Um, and so I see these two sides of him. And so, although it didn't take away the love for the game, his like emotional, physical, geographical development stunted because he had to do so many things that he didn't choose to. And I really, really was thankful for the Australia experience because it was the first time I saw him away from his dad. Like it wasn't 24 seven. And so there was such a clear dichotomy between 
how he interacted when he had to do something and how he interacted when he could just play basketball. And I can sincerely say the love of basketball for him is so high and so strong. It's just if he could literally cut out all the other stuff, that would be a dream. How frequently have you been able to go back to a subject like that? I do it. Um, I've done it a couple of times and I only, I did it for Brandon Ingram. So I profiled him first when he was on the Lakers. And then when he had that really scary summer with the, the injury mm -hmm. and then going to the Pelicans and I did it again then. Um, and the reason I do it is something critical has to change in a subject's life um, between the two stories. So if you're only doing it just because you simply have a relationship and there's some casual news, I don't think it's worth it. But I think I like to profile people that are young because I think the most exciting time in an athlete's life is at the beginning or at the end. The middle is like way less interesting to me. And I, I think like Ingram was so at the beginning. And if I characterize his journey, it's metamorphosis. He was perpetually becoming. Lamelo at the beginning, he was trying to fit into this mold set for him. And the tension was, will he jump into that suit or will he create something anew? That's still being determined. But I think the reason why I revisited both of those is because the questions between them kept haunting me, not haunting me, but like I, I was so curious, you know, and I think curiosity is what really brings you to profile someone twice. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. You're seeing Lonzo and also LaMelo making these steps to distance themselves, certainly professionally, and it seems like in some ways even personally, from their dad. And it's it feels telling in a lot of ways that they're all doing this at once, and I think the reasons are fairly self-evident. But what do you think it's going to do for LaMelo? Uh, and I guess even Lonzo, too, in terms of creating that distance and I guess also like what becomes of LeVar like if he if he doesn't have this professional hold over his kids well I think we have to remember that there's two different relationships the ones that we see and the ones that they have so even if the professional ones that we see appear to be disintegrating the personal ones are still there their mm -hmm. tension is how do you maintain both and yeah and it's, and it's this constant, the camera's on, the camera's off. And I think that like, it's really painful to have to do that. And I can't really speak for Lonzo. I profiled him his rookie year. So quite some time has passed, but I think at least for LaMelo, like he is trying to figure out who he is without his dad yeah. and whether LeVar recognizes or not, he has got to figure out who he is without his kids. And the interesting part is, aside from the fact that there's a lot of money on the table and a professional basketball league and all this, these prophecies, that's kind of like no different than many families I know. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wanted to profile that family because LaMelo, how, I know so many younger brothers dealing with the same thing. And it's like these, these however you can make these famous people seem relatable, that's what's going to get readers. And so although their situation is very different, right? Not all of us are embroiled in, you know, lawsuits over brands and stuff, but it is a classic father-son. How do I grow up with you? But how do I make you understand that I can't grow up if you're smothering me? I think, you know, to to jump a little bit into the the feature you have out now, for uh, the opposite of that is how do you make people who seem I don't want you know 
otherwise ordinary or less spectacular or less well-known. I mean, uh, Andrea Aquino is an outstanding uh, college basketball player who, you know, I presume is, is you know, going to go play in the WNBA at some point. Um, but she's not a household name. She's not somebody that a lot of people know. And she's, correct me if I'm wrong, 6'9", yeah. which, you know, you know, obviously you stick out, you know, if you're anybody who's 6'9", particularly if you're a woman. Right. If she were six one or six two, like you wouldn't necessarily see on its face something extraordinary. But there's an extraordinary backstory here about mm -hmm. how she got to this country and what she's been doing since she got here. What's what's sort of the the contrast there when you take somebody who isn't as known and you reveal what is extraordinary about them as opposed to finding those things that are common? I'm really glad you asked that because that is one of my favorite things to do. Like I of course love profiling people that are famous because it gets a lot of attention, but my favorite stories are people that you've never heard of. You know, the transgender girl that's in high school in Connecticut that is being, there's a pro, there's like a, um, a petition to, against her to run. The 13 year old football player in Orange County who commits suicide after a concussion, Andrea Aquino, Six nine basketball player, you'll probably never hear about her after this. The reason is because although we don't know their names, we can see ourselves in their stories. Many of us have not gone through human trafficking like um, Andrea Aquino, but what we've gone through is we know what it's like to have a mother like she does in the piece that is trying their hardest and just cannot come up with the money. We know what it's like to want to dream and do anything for it and find yourself in a really untenable situation, confused. Um, a lot of women know what it's like to go through body image issues like Andrea did, maybe not six, nine, but certainly something that you're embarrassed about, ashamed about. And so for me, when I'm picking a story, I'm picking a story that's going to resonate as far as the topic. Like it doesn't always have to be famous. It's just like, how can I enter a conversation that's important without, you know, without sacrificing the narrative? Because a lot of times you interview famous people. We've all been there. They're very boring. <laughs> They're, it can be. Not always, speaker, but yeah. it can be. Always, it but can be. you know what? They don't want to be there. And I, you know, my nickname at Bleacher Report used to be the write around queen because I would take three minutes and come up with 5,000 words and uh, or no minutes and come up with 5,000 words. And I'm at a place now where I don't want to beg people to tell their story when they don't want it told. I want to talk to the people that want to tell their story. And a lot of times these people you've never heard of are dying to tell their stories. And as access shrinks for us, like I would rather give you an extraordinary story about an extraordinary person. I mean, who you might not be familiar with, but who's going to teach you something, make you more empathetic, change you in some way. And it, they don't have to be famous to do that. Wait. Will you break down to uh, the viewers right now who haven't, uh, who may not have had a chance to read this piece, which which dropped today on Bleacher Report? Definitely should check it out because it's quite interesting. The human trafficking uh, element that that you alluded to before. Can you, can you explain to people what what happened in that in, in terms of what happened to Andrea Aquino? Yeah. So um, Andrea's always been really, really tall. Um, she was like nine years old. She was already six feet and she was growing up in um, Paraguay and she never really fit in because of her height. 
one day this man comes up to her and notices how tall she is. She's like six, seven by that point. She's 14 years old. And he's like, you know, you could be a superstar in basketball. And she's just kind of like, uh, uh, whatever. She, she doesn't want to talk to him. She usually hides from people because they treated her like she was just a monster. I'm not being hyper hyperbolic, a monster because she was so tall. She started avoiding um, the main streets, hoping that nobody would make fun of her, call her avatar. And then um, that guy who saw her um, finds her mom and says, hey, she should play for the capital in Paraguay for this team and maybe something good will happen. Andrea doesn't really have a lot of financial prospects with her mom who sells bread and, and homemade guava jam at the market. So she says, sure. So she's 15 years old, never played basketball before she goes. Obviously, she's really tall. She dunks in a practice. It goes on her Facebook. This man from Patterson, New Jersey, who has um, Paraguayan roots, finds it, shares it, reaches out and is like, oh, my God, you're so talented. I could get you a scholarship. Um, you know, I could get you a contract with Nike. I could get you your own apartment. You could go to WNBA and like when your mother is selling guava jam on the street, that sounds really nice. And so she tries to do as much research as she can. Um, and she ends up going to America, but this man ended up selling her a bunch of lies, took her to a completely different school district than promised. She ends up bouncing home to home, becomes a victim of human trafficking, essentially being in homes that she was not, um, told she was going to be not having access to food, healthcare, sanitary items, um, you know, as far like a bathroom was upstairs, like just really horrible living conditions. Meanwhile, she's thriving as a basketball star. She's so tall, but nobody knows what she's going through inside. These wonderful reporters um, from New, Jer New Jersey Advanced Media uncovers that there's actually a lot of people in Andrea's situation at this high school in New Jersey, and it's an international pipeline. You've got players from Nigeria, Puerto Rico, a lot of other places, and they're being fed these lies to compete on this team, but they actually don't have visas, they don't have great living conditions, and they are all in a bunch of trouble. So I actually, and stop me if I'm going too far, but- No, 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 please. Yeah, and so it's this fascinating story that both involves what it is like to be a victim of human trafficking and also this journey of self-acceptance from I am a tall woman to I need to learn how to live in my body. And I wanted to play on this concept of body because she was wanted for her body in basketball, right? That was identified as like, you have value. You're six, nine, you can go to the WNBA. And then the body is not valued. It, it's like left for like noodles and eggs are the only food that the body can have. And so her body, I wanted to show this body going through all these things to eventually kind of become whole and realize you're more than a body. You're a person, you're a woman, you're more than that. So it was kind of a, a story that spanned the whole thing. And I met her three years ago when I was a freelancer for ESPN. Um, I actually was not at Bleacher yet. I was still at the Orange County Register. I was trying to make it out of there. I was freelancing and I saw these really great investigative uh, reports for New Jersey Advanced Media. And um, my editor at ESPN at the time was like, you should look into this. So Andrea had just moved to California. Mm -hmm. So um, after the sequel I just told you about with the, um, the scandal, uh, the Department of Homeland Security started investigating. I started investigating and Andrea, for her own safety, had to leave the state. So she ended up going to California. 
And I met her and I was like, look, I really want to talk about this. I know you might not be ready, um, but I just wanted to see if you were open. She's like, I don't want to talk about it. So I tried to do this story without all of the New Jersey stuff we just talked about. Obviously it didn't work. <laughs> and she was afraid of getting deported. And I was like, you know, it's not worth it. I'm not going to run the story. Don't worry about it. Take care of yourself. I hope you have a nice career. Um, and then I moved to Bleacher Report. And three years later, I was like, Huh, I really wonder what happened to that girl. And then she was ready. So the the human trafficking part of it, it, it was interesting because she normally, as, as you point out in, in the piece, when people think about human trafficking, particularly human trafficking of women, they often think about sex crimes. And mm -hmm. she said that she she was never sexually abused in this situation. It was literally trafficking a pipeline of athleticism. And it, I found it, I mean, it's it's horrifying, but I also found it interesting in the sense and surprising when you think about, frankly, professional women's basketball is not thought of really as this massive money-making industry, much mm -hmm. less you don't think about preps level women's basketball as that sort of thing. It, was it money ultimately that's driving these type of pipelines or is it is it something different? It's weird because I thought the same thing, you know, as a person that went through the AAU system, there's no money there, like literally no money there. Um, so I, I don't really know. I think there's more money than there was when I was playing for sure. Um, but I also think a lot of coaches have relationships with each other and there's certain kickbacks. So it might not be like money. It might be like, if you get me this player, I'll get you this some this other thing or i'll consider you for this job like there might be other things happening there too so they're but like I, bartering chips i don't you know it's hard to say like the person that sort of i guess smuggled her in there like it's some dark channel type thing and he works yeah. for a lot of different people and it's it's not as like deep as like the stuff we saw with the men's college basketball scandal but this shows me like it's that there's definitely there's definitely channels. And I think the women are exploring a lot of the, not the women, but the women's game is like involves the, the international stuff. But to your point about the sexual abuse, I mean, that was my first concern, right? Because yeah. like as a woman, as anyone like would think, but certainly it's a bit easier to ask that question if you're a woman. And so I just straight up was like, I know this is so personal, but I just need to ask, like, did this happen? Because she wouldn't, I knew who the man was who smuggled her because it's public information, but she just like would not name him. And, and I thought, is she afraid of him because something? And so I just, I wanted to be respectful. I wanted to be whatever, but you know, you're also a journalist and you want to make sure your subject feels comfortable and, and ask them in an ethical way. So, um, yeah, I'm really glad the story came to light. I, I thought it was I thought it was dead. It was dead for three years. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's just it the way the sort of the, that kind of thing comes because that was honestly my my first thought too was like the why the why is why does somebody get smuggled you know like that from one place to another and and right. and all did you did you when you kind of think about this the feel the other part of it that I thought was just really compelling about her was this constant fear of if I say something, if I stand up for myself, I will, I, they're going to throw me out of the country. I'm going to be deported. Right. When, 
when when what what is the dynamic do you think like between sports and that like just the the ability whether it's that whether it's I'll take you off this team whether it's I'll you know I'll, I'll keep you from getting a scholarship from from here to that school that you want to go to what is the relationship that you find in sports oftentimes with that kind of threat if you if you speak up for yourself if you stand up for yourself someone somewhere will take this thing away from you it's definitely very present and it's very present in and in, in a lot of ways that we don't talk about there's the more mild versions like why are athletes so manicured when they talk to us it's because they are afraid of something happening and it might not be as intense as like you will get deported but I do think that part of the reason why they're so manicured is because they are afraid of, of something happening. Like, have you ever, I'm sure you've been through this. You have an interview, the SID sits next to you. He's practically up your nose. It's like, you know, and I think it, it places the athlete. There's, there's a, there's a watcher. And so I always want to get the athlete outside of whatever, like the locker room, wherever I just want to go out so that they're not under this, this like, power dynamic where they feel if they say something, they're going to get in trouble with Andrea. Like she was so terrified to talk to me when she was a high schooler and I could just sense it. I, I felt tense. You know, usually you want to interview that flows very well. You have a connection, but the stakes were so high. And I think as a reporter, this isn't a game. Like you're not writing for something that some AAU dad is going to get pissed at you if you, you know, we've all been yelled at by the AAU dad, but this is like, this had like real consequences. Like I, you know, a couple of years ago, I was on the phone with people from the Department of Homeland Security and I was like, what do you think could happen if I publish this? And they're like, there's a real chance that they would come after her. And so um, it's hard. And there's a lot of things. And this is a good reminder. You have no idea what these athletes are battling. You mm -hmm. have no idea what their situations are like. You have no idea why they're not being uh, talkative with you. You have no idea. People in LA in particular years ago learned about that with Yasiel Puig. I mean, there, yeah. there was a lot going on in Puig's right. life that right. people had no idea. Even, even uh, everybody broadly knowing how he came to America and, you know, everybody knew that he was in some fashion smuggled over, but like the, the things the details that, that on, came out, it was right. It was like, Whoa, the things going okay. on stateside. Nobody knew about. But this, this to me is the beauty of long form, and this to me is what breaks my heart when people don't value it. Is because how can you replace feeling like you know a superstar from a profile? Like if a profile is done well, like you should finish the profile and say like, "Wow, I feel like I really know what that person's like." You know, how can you replace that? You can't. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean I feel like I like them. That's a different, right. that's different. Right. But, uh, but also, but it's also like, it's not just that I, it's, I know what they're like. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone assumes that I know so much about LaMelo and I do, I know his deepest, darkest trauma. I know so much, but at the end of the day, like I have to be really careful because I will never know these people. I can know the, I can know your human trafficking. I can know the worst thing you've had with your famous dad, but like, I don't know these people. And it's a mistake for people in our industry to think that we really know the athletes that we cover because think how long it takes to know someone in your personal life. It can take years before they know something very special about you. So I think like your goal as a writer, as a journalist, like how can I come as close as possible to giving you a snapshot of like where an athlete is in a certain time and space, right? Like I don't need to give you like he was born, he died, but 
LaMelo's at a certain place in his life. Brandon Ingram's at a certain place in his life. And it's like, how can I bring that to light where they're at? The, the interesting question. Yeah. Interesting question on the chat. Um, and you can kind of, you can see this, you can sort of interpret it how you will that balance between the reporter hat and the human hat, you know, like sort of the, you know, when you get into things like human trafficking or, you know, when people tell you things or, or, you know, that deciding what to this stuff with Tyler Skaggs, like how you approach a story about a, a person who had a drug problem that people didn't know that he had, he died. Um, how do you how do you do that? Like, what is how do you think of those things? Yeah, I love this question because it's, it's just something I think about twenty four seven. You know, Tyler Skaggs is a really good example. When you go into an interview, you're a human first. I'm a woman first before I'm a reporter, and that's something that I have to be okay with. And um, what that means is I'm coming in with an empathy as a human. Like, empathy is the greatest skill you can have as a reporter. And it doesn't mean I'm on your side. It just means like, I'm here to listen to you and understand your story. So Tyler Skaggs, I'm not going in there thinking like, oh, I'm judging this person because he has done this or hasn't done this or whatever. I'm going in there like, wow, this wife and mother are deeply traumatized from losing their son. And it is inherently always going to be tragic for them. And I'm stepping into their trauma me, a stranger. And so I just think the first thing is awareness. I put my human hat on every time I go to work because I have to be able to put myself in their shoes in order to understand them. Because I have never had, you know, a spouse or a brother that died of an overdose, but I have a heart and I have a, a, a human hat on and I can listen and I can learn. And I think like the more you do that, the more rich your story is going to be. If you distance yourself and don't let yourself emotionally go there, the reporting's not going to be as strong. Like when I wrote the Tyler Skaggs story and the Gigi Bryant story, mm -hmm. I, I cried writing those drafts. Like I would have to like stop and gather myself. And then I said like, why are you gathering yourself? This emotion is important. So I think it's just, maybe it's like bringing the human into the reporting and like normalizing that like okay it's okay to be affected by my work that's what's going to make it powerful you you mentioned Gigi and the piece that uh you wrote about uh Gigi Bryant for people who have not seen it is really really good and very emotional very sad i'm going to i'm going to put it a link to it in the chat right now but in learning more about Gigi was she the of the daughters that were old enough that you would know them, obviously Kobe's infant daughter, it, there's she's still you know developing personality traits you know as as a very small kid, but of of the three that were old enough to really sort of know who they were becoming, was she the one that was most like Kobe? I would say so. Even it goes beyond mannerisms of like, oh they had the same like fade away or oh they had the same yeah. Story. It was like. You, okay, it's hard to explain. When you have that type of drive, you know what it is. You know what it smells like. You know what it feels like. It's this thing inside you that is so harsh and so driven that others can't understand it. Like it's something you could talk about. Like, yeah, I like to work hard, but it's it's a feeling. And like she had that. Like I think that was the greatest thing I learned about her is that she would be telling Kobe it's time to work out. You know, and I think a lot of people wrote about her like Kobe was the one doing this. And I that's what kind of 
I wouldn't say angered me, but it it motivated me to do a story that centered her because she was always written about like just a footnote in his story. Like he would just bring her and she was like him because she was the initiator. She was the one like, we need to do 20 more reps. Like there was this funny anecdote that didn't make the piece, but they were doing yoga and um, Gigi was not good at yoga. And anyone who does yoga knows that thing is hard. Um, and they, she was doing <laughs> It's very hard. It's very hard. I've given up many times. I have a phase where I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a yoga person now. It never happens. And she was like bending and trying to do this. And she did it so wrong. And she looked so awkward. And everyone was laughing. Gigi was so pissed. She was so pissed um, because she wanted to do it perfect. And I feel like Kobe would have been the same way. Like I can't. Uh, that for and sure. of course, yoga yeah. definitionally is a thing that you are not supposed to be competitive at. Right. Um, zen, but there's no Zen for those two. Um, she well, was and also too, I mean, you know, Brian and I covered the second half of Kobe's career. And one of the things we learned was, I mean, Kobe had this amazing span of interests. I mean, he, he was, one of the most intellectually curious people I've ever been around, much less athletes I've ever been around. Right. But he did not, and he was very good at a lot of things because he just was talented and, and very smart. He also had no patience for things that he wasn't good at. Like, you know, I heard many, uh, many people who knew Kobe, played with him, whatever, that, for example, like he didn't play golf because I think he gave it a go in the beginning, wasn't good at it, and was like, screw this, I'm not doing it. Like I like he he didn't really have time for the things that he wasn't good at because his his standard for how he did blank was right. so high. Like I'm, I'm not gonna waste my time with the things that I'm bad at. Well, my favorite anecdote from the piece was they were up like an absurd amount. Like I forgot what it was, but it was maybe like 50 points or something. And the other team had zero points. And the girl on the other team finally makes a free throw. And Gigi's teammate claps like just, you know, oh, my God, they got a point. Gigi slapped her hand away like we don't clap like the game is not over. Like we're not. That's not what we do. And it was very like you could just imagine Kobe doing. It's it's that meme that keeps recirculating. Right. The job isn't over. Right, right. Job isn't over. Right. And it's, it's weird that you can have that. That that's something that can be in your DNA. You know what I mean? Like I know we're like our parents. I'm turning into my mother as we speak. But it's like it's different when it's like something like that. How do you teach that? It's you know it it, it it's and it starts when they're really little. You. You can identify things, traits in, I mean, I, I don't have that, but like you can identify traits in your kids right. that, you know, okay, that's you. Like this thing right. that we're doing right now is your fault. Like, you know, it's, like he, you know, he gets that from you. She gets that from you or the good stuff too. And, you know, I, and I think, you know, you don't love your kids more because one of them shares, because like, sometimes you don't want them to, you know, like they pick up stuff from you that you wish they didn't. Um, right. But you do identify with it. And so you know which kids are kind of your kids and which one is mom's kid. And and I and you could just see like that was his kid. Like that was the one that was like him. And it was the way he and you mostly could tell by the way he talked about her. Right. And I think though the reason why I felt so strongly like I had to do this profile is because although I wanted to show like, yes, she got these things from him, mm -hmm. she was a independent being, yes. you know, and that like, I wanted to center her, you know, and I, I didn't like that. She was kind of just like a footnote in his story. Like 
we know two things about her. She loves UConn and she wants to go to the WNBA. And I wanted to know, like, if I was her age, would I have a sleepover with her? Would I want to, like, go hang? What would we go to the mall? Would we do this? And it's like, I just didn't feel like anyone yeah. had that human story on her. Yeah. I mean, it was when Vanessa spoke at uh, the memorial inside Staples Center, which in and of itself was one of the most brave and frankly, I have no idea how she got through that. Um, it was one of the strongest things I've ever seen anybody do. But one of the things about it that I really appreciated Vanessa doing it in the first place was how much you learned about Gigi from, from the way she talked about her. Because I mean, there, there were things that she shared about Kobe, like details that I didn't know. But even if I didn't know the specifics, I, I knew enough about Kobe from being around him, but also just, you know, he was one of the most covered athletes of, you know, the last 30 to 40 years, that there are things that you could guess, even if you literally didn't know the specifics. But in the case of Gigi, I, I didn't know anything about her. I mean, I, I had been around her because, you know, she and Natalia used to be at all of Kobe's games. So, you know, we, we saw her and the, and the old, and Natalia grow up a lot during the second half of Kobe's career. But I, I didn't really know anything about her other than she was this incredibly driven and talented basketball player, like you were saying, like somebody that at 12 or 13, you already knew was going to be in the WNBA. But to learn that much about her during that service in such an incredibly difficult moment for Vanessa, again, I mean, again, my admiration for her in that moment was just incredible, but I, I was very glad that she shared that because there's nobody else that could have in the same way. Well, and that's why I wanted to end the piece with she was loved because I think like in order to validate a life these days, somebody, it was almost like an obit, like, okay, yeah, she was really good at basketball, but that's not a life. That's mm -hmm. not what made her valuable. Like, okay, that was really cool. And I'm glad that she was good and I'm sure she could have been good, but like, if you talk to the 30 girls that loved her, that will always have a hole in their heart, you will understand that Gigi's impact is so much more than she was going to be really good or great or professional. She was loved. She was loved so much. And I think like when I wrote that, I just broke down because, okay, it's like I profile athletes for a living. Okay most of the ones I profile are really good at whatever sport, but like when they leave this earth, what did they really leave? Was it just that they were good at basketball? What kind of people are they? And so I think like, yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's our responsibility to, to show who they are in their full humanity, which means bad stuff too. Um, but also like dignifying the experience. And I, I don't, and that was actually my last question I want to ask you about this. And, you know, we do a couple more things before we let you go. The goal with any feature is to kind of give that, you know, a, a view, a, as much of a, a 360 degree view of a person as you can, like you say, in that moment of time. And that, like you say, includes the bad stuff. How do you approach that with a, a girl that young who, and I'm not even implying that there's like bad stuff that like to, to tell it's a different kind of story, but how, how does that work in, in, in a situation like this? Well, the thing that's so ironic is like, 
a month or so before she died, I pitched a story on her. I wanted to profile her. And then I ended up backtracking and I was like, guys, I don't think I, this is ethically okay. She's, she's too young. I mm -hmm. think 15 is sort of my, like maybe 14 if it's the next whoever, but I think we shouldn't do this. And then they were like, yeah, don't worry about it. Like she's got so much left to go. Like we don't need to rush it. So already I was feeling anxious about like profiling her because I had already felt it wasn't like ethical before. Um, and when I was talking with one of my mentors, he was like, I don't, cause I was, I was wondering if it's ethically wrong if I contact parents on the Facebook page of the middle school, like, is that a breach of privacy a little bit too far to ask to their, to talk to their grieving children? And I think like, this goes back to the viewer's question about, um, your human hat. I was like, you know what? I think these kids are grieving right now. I don't think I'm going to hit up the parents on Facebook not going to do that. I think you have to make these choices and it's hard to know whether you made the right or wrong one. But I think with like a 13 year old, it was so sensitive. I was so, you know, you can ask any of my friends. I was terrified for the story to come out. I was, um, you know, I was just worried that people would think, is this exploitative? Is this, this, did mm -hmm. I, not, did I not get it right? Did I, cause you're always afraid of not getting right. It's not just about like, did I spell the names right? Are all the dates right? It's, did I get the soul right? Did I get this person's soul right? And it's very hard to do when the person is no longer alive. It's very hard to do when they're the daughter of a famous icon. It's very hard to do when they're a minor. But that's where my resolve to honor her spirit was higher than my fear of failing to do so. And so even though I was nervous, I was like, well, you got to just out report, out report, bust your ass. So I did 30 interviews with people. I talked with her friends for hours. And so I think how you approach it is like, I just need to make sure that I do all the work that I can to do the best job that I can. Well, like, like we said it, it, and we put it in the, in the chat, it, it's worth people's time. Um, it's very, you accomplished what you wanted to do. It, it's you. very, very well done. Thank you. And, and uh, I, Imagine not particularly easy or even so which particularly awkward, easy which, to write. Which awkward pivot do you want to go to, Andy? Um, <laughs> you want the, to go to the game awkward pivot or the music topic before the game awkward pivot? Uh, well, I mean, we're if we're going to do the music before the game, then I guess that has to be first. That's true. Or we could just go straight. You you choose. Uh, let's, Mirren, do you want to do two awkward transitions or just one? One. <laughs> okay, then let's go straight to the game. Straight Just to the one game. awkward transition. Is that this, and it, of the ones that you chose, this is easily the more awkward transition. So oh, that was well yeah, done. Let's just lean into the awkwardness. Let's do it. Let's go. Right. We we do like to play games on the show in the most literal sense, and so this Alan is a person that like didn't own a TV. So like, what what could be worse? We're fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is again. So I came across something today um, that was. About there was this, it was this uh, link that sends you to the Webster's Dictionary for all the words that were debuted in the dictionary for the year that you were born, um, or well, any year, but most people like look up their birth year because that's what they do. Um, and so, because you are a, a, a woman of, of words, we thought this would be a fun quiz. So, what we have well, here, you did actually when you yeah. told me the game, I was like, this is horrifying, she's way smarter than me. This yes. is gonna be a terrible game for me. <laughs> this is this is awful. 
Right. It's, it's not, you don't have to define the word. I have like a what seven word vocabulary. It's true. Andy doesn't know any words at all. He just, <laughs> most of his features are filled with very, like very, 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 very important shot that he hit. Um, that's how he described the Anthony Davis three pointer during the playoffs. Um, it was very, very good. Um, so what I have is Andy was born in 1753. Um, <laughs> I kid. He was born in 1972. I was born in 1975. You, Mirren Fader, were born in 1991, as you were uh, told us earlier uh, in the day. So what I have is a list of words, and I will tell you the word, and you have to tell me if that were de debuted in the dictionary in 1972, 1975, or 1991. And oh, I skipped God. some of the really easy ones from like 1991, like, you know, mixtape. <laughs> because that obviously wasn't from 1972 or all the ones related to cyber this or cyber gift card. Because, you know, when we were young, Mirren, they were gift certificates. Wow. Yeah. So, you mm -hmm. know, take you to the way back machine. So you that's know, how this works. Walkman, okay. And it, it broke and I had to put a rubber band around it. Okay. So okay. We, we still get, I get some credibility. Okay. Yeah. That is credibility. You're keeping it real. <laughs> um, so. Here's how this works. So you, you don't have to like name as your buzzer. I'll just I will ask you. And we'll keep score. So here's the first one. Garage Band. Garage Band. Is that from 1972, 1975, or 1991? When did that first appear in the dictionary? Garage Band. Andy or Mirren? Andy, you go first. That this feels like a trick question off the bat, doesn't it's such it? A hard one. Well, because I, I feel like it's 1991. Right. Defined as an amateur rock band typically holding its rehearsals in a garage and usually only having a local audience. I I'm think I think that I'm wrong, but I'm going to say 1991. Okay, I felt 75. The answer is 1972. No points for anyone. Really? No okay. points for anyone. 1972, garage band debuts. <laughs> uh, number two, pickleball, a very important word from the bubble, from the Orlando bubble, a lot true. of pickleball. An indoor or outdoor game that is played on a level court with shorthanded paddles and a perforated plastic ball volleyed over a low net by two players or pairs of players. I love, by the way, definitions. <laughs> love them. Uh, Mirren, you go first. Is that 75, 72, 75, or 91? 75. Andy? I actually think it's 1975, too. You are both correct. Pickleball debuted yes. in 1975. There we go. All right, here we go. Number All three. Right. Pescatarian. One whose diet includes fish, but no other meat. Pescatarian. Uh, shout out to our friend Frank. He's a pescatarian. Yes, he's, he's a pescatarian. Um, I thought I'm he said Episcopalian first, but it turns out he's a pescatarian. I'm going to say 1991. Mirren? I was thinking the same thing because we we're so slow with these things. I don't mean to copy you, but I do That's think okay. copy away. It's the correct answer. Okay. 1991. Uh, here we go. It's two to two. This is very competitive. This is going to go right down to the wire. I feel point shaving, point shaving an attempt as a member of a team favored to win, to influence the final score of a game so that the predicted winner wins by less than the point spread. Point shaving, something that I assume you never engaged in at your year at Lewis and Clark. Uh, Andy, you go first. 72, 75, or 91? Point well, it's shaving. Been, it's been going on for a while. Um, you know, I, I, in Goodfellas, you know, they they had been, they were involved in a point shaving scandal. Um, I'm going to say 1972. Mirren? 
Okay, I'm going to go with 75. Mirren takes the lead. Oh, oh. Three to two, 1975. <laughs> um, here we go. Corn pone, defined as down home or countrified. Corn pone. <laughs> what? Um, 91. Andy? 72. 72. Andy oh. ties it back up. This is really intense. This really is. <laughs> I bet you. Yeah. Oh, All right, here I'll we tell go. Mirren, when you eventually write the feature about this game, it is going to be so compelling. Yes. <laughs> I'm already memorizing the colors of your shirt. Don't worry. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> the next word, verklempt. Verklempt. So yeah, bring it in for what I'm assuming are all our people. Um, <laughs> defined as overcome with emotions or choked up. 72, 75, or 91. 72. Uh, Mirren. 72. Andy? 91. 91 for Clemson. Ah! It's because of the 91. Mike Myers sketch on Saturday Night Live. That's, I think that's how it ended up in the dictionary because that sketch was so popular. Oh, four to three, Andy. This is, oh, that was a big, 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 uh, big moment in this game. That was a, okay. All right. All right. Number, number, here we go. Beer pong. Beer pong, a game in which a set of beer-containing cups is placed at two ends of a table in which a player scores by bouncing or tossing a ping-pong ball into the opponent's cup from which the opponent then has to drink the beer. Again, I love definitions. <laughs> As in 1972, 75, or uh, 1991. Beer pong. Andy? 75. Mirren? 72? Seventy-two. Oh, oh my goodness! Oh, this is so close. It's it's four to four. This is game five. Lakers Heat. Just it is fourth. Throwing haymakers. Which one of you is Jimmy Butler? Which one of you is LeBron? We're gonna find out here in just a second. I'm just very, I, I, this game is different than I thought it was gonna be. I thought it was gonna be quizzing us on actual words. And no, gonna... I wouldn't do that because it wouldn't be fair. <laughs> it would, <laughs> it would lose. Not and while I would enjoy that, I don't think it's that it's not that interesting to anybody. All right, we got two more left. Arnold Palmer, a cold beverage of iced tea mixed with lemonade. Arnold Palmer, what is that a 72, 75, or 91? Keep in mind, Arnold Palmer is an old man who's presumably been drinking this for a long time. Mirren. 75? Andy. I'm going to go counterintuitive and oh say 1991 is the correct answer. Oh. Andy takes a 5-4 lead into the last question. But Mirren, today right. is your lucky day, as if you didn't already realize that. Um, <laughs> the final question is worth two. Randomly. So just happened just to be that happens way. to be worth two. So you can win if you get this correct. There's so much pressure. It's fine. Again. There is. The final word is debit card. A card, like a credit card, by which money may be withdrawn or the cost of purchases paid directly from the holder's bank account without the payment of interest. Debit card, 72, 75, or 91. Andy. This feels obvious mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't think it existed before about 1987. So this feels really obvious. 
which makes me feel like it's a trick question. But then I feel like, oh, he wants me to think it's a trick question. Right now, Mirren, what he's doing, he's not playing the game. He's playing the player. No, no. What he's doing is filibustering <laughs> so he can try to come up with something. No, my thought has been exactly the same as you. I'm like, he's trying to trick us to pick the earlier one, but it's the later one. But then maybe it's not. So, it's so I'm going to reverse the reverse psychology and say it's 91. Okay, I'm going with 75. Mirren oh. Fader, this is so. This oh. might be the greatest moment of your life. The wow. answer is 1975. Big comeback. Mirren Fader is the winner of tonight's game. She wins six to five. Debit card debuted in 1975. A credit card, uh, card I mean, like a credit card by which money may be withdrawn or the cost of purchase is paid directly from the holder's bank account without the payment of interest. Hooray! Be honest, Mirren. When when this feature eventually comes out about this game. You were going to write it where you want either way, right? I mean, like as, as the person in charge of it, you the the arc was going to be your eventual win. I mean, yes. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> On a scale of one to ten, how embarrassing would it have been to lose to Andy in a game about words? <laughs> to be honest, I was close. I almost. Did. <laughs> <laughs> I was a pretty worthy adversary. I mean, you were killing it. You were beating me. There was a stretch. I got a little motivated. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you missed out the moment the kid from nyc says mirror and ad game two buzzer beater fader you should have said kobe afterwards i mean that would have been perfect you should have said kobe well, you walked off i wasn't that quick <laughs> well you weren't you weren't confident enough you weren't you weren't confident enough to call your shot i wasn't I, i'm gonna i'm gonna stay humble <laughs> stay within myself sure I'm a person who's been showered with many awards for the work that I've done but it's important to stay centered <laughs> so what's next on the list you now you are now a person with a bike and a TV what comes next I know and now I can legitimately cook and bake uh, which is great life skills I've acquired during this time um, what is next for me do you have anything in the pipeline? Anything that's going to be coming out that you can talk about? Um, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I'm writing my first book. Um, you can do a process of elimination. It's based on one of the NBA stories that I wrote. Um, and I am so thrilled because books are my love. And I am so thrilled. Um, it's really daunting, but it's awesome. And I'm going to announce it in December. When well, if you need any help, as Andy mentioned earlier, we wrote a book about the uh, Dennis Rodman of bass fishing. So please, don't be, yeah, if we can, again, we can find one, but sure. Um, please don't be shy. Um, you know, don't feel like, you know, I know you have like ins to like, you know, Jeff Perlman, who's I think I've written a couple books about things and stuff like that, but don't, don't yeah. feel like you're just locked into one guy. Um, yeah, if it makes you, you feel better too, you are in by any measurement, a much bigger, better position to be writing this book than Brian and I were mm -hmm. when our mentor <laughs> kept telling us, you really don't know how to write a book. <laughs> Like you do. You know how. Really don't know how to do this. Look, every morning when I write from seven to nine, that's how I feel. So you know what? I think it's just part of the process. Yeah, but the difference is he was. I mean, <laughs> we actually. I have to say, we we wrote a book in like four months. That was oh, actually God. kind of impressive in its own right. But you are in a much in a day place. before in an era before tra a professional transcription. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
God. We, we, when we got this deal, we were told, you have to turn it over in four months. Do you think you can do that? We're like, yeah. Oh, sure. Totally. How hard could it be? Do you no. get a transcriber? No, I've been doing it. I had to do it. By, I'm doing it by hand. At the beginning, I, I had a little bit of help. because like I got literally it. by hand? Like no, you by type. typing. Okay, thank God. So I had to. I had to soak my. <laughs> I've interviewed over 160 people, and I had to soak my hand in Epsom salt. Recently. Oh yeah, for a second though, when I thought you were literally writing out your notes, no. I'm like, you, you do seem like an old soul in that way, but not that old. I hope. Like I'm, like I'm ancient, but not that ancient. Okay, cool. You know. Um. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that this was fun. This was so fun. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. That was great. Anytime. Um, tomorrow, we'll go back to the NFL with Caitlin Jones. We had a really fun week. LZ Grandis are going to join us on Wednesday to talk a little Dodgers, uh, among other things. And then Thursday and Friday, we'll lean into this whole World Series thing. Pedro Mora from The Athletic is going to join us on Thursday and Friday. Greg Bergman, our resident Dodger uh, person who knows things about them. And Lindsey Fulton, who also knows baseball. Uh, both from our, our, our days at 710 will be joining us on Friday. But tonight, Mirren Fader, thanks again so much. This is a lot of fun, and hopefully we get to do it again after you write your book. Yes, anytime. Thank you so awesome. much. Awesome. We thanks. really appreciate it. Don't you need a lot? <laughs>